Hey, welcome back. We're going to continue here in a minute with the message this morning. I want to pray before we do, so join with me at home if you would. Father God, you are the source of all life, your creator, your redeemer, your friend. It is only right that we bow to you and acknowledge that you are God and no other. Lord, would you inhabit not only the praises from our lips, but would you inhabit our thoughts, our convictions, our time as we look together at your word. Lord, would you draw us more fully into your presence. Would you help us honor you as is your due. In Jesus' name, amen. Having nothing to do with the message, I woke up this morning when I don't want to, middle of the night, and realized I wasn't going to get back to sleep, so I went downstairs, got my coffee, opened my Bible, and I'm reading in Deuteronomy, going through the Bible in a year again, and guys, I'm just blown away by how good and how rich Scripture is, and by how worthy God is. I was reading the blessings and the curses God gave on Israel near the end of Deuteronomy, and it's striking that the curses, which sound so severe to us, are because of God's greatness. It's the person who's being offended. It's his greatness that's at stake uh, more than the individuals involved. So it's just a great, great reminder. Hey, we're going to be back in the Heroes and Villains series this morning, and I had prayed long and hard about what to speak on this morning. Larry gave me his Sunday, so there'd be some continuity. Uh, it seemed, on one hand, improper to go back to life as normal, to go back into the Heroes and Villains series, but rather to speak something about the COVID virus or the economic issues we're facing, social distancing and all that. But the more I prayed, the more convinced I was that it was appropriate. In fact, it was the right thing to do to go back into that series. And so that's what we'll do this morning. And regarding sort of carrying on the, the big rocks of life in as normal a way as we can, words from C.S. Lewis from some essays of his that were printed in 1948 have been circulating broadly on the Internet. One is con uh, called Present Concerns. In Lewis's day, the concern was that the atomic bomb was now reality. And between the East and the West, this Cold War was developing. And what did life look like with the threat of atomic holocaust? And Lewis basically, his main point was, we're all going to die. We shouldn't live in fear or dread. And we should instead get on with the normal affairs of life in all the ways that we can. And so we want to do that as well, in part at least, a small step in that direction by going back to the series that we've been in all along. Uh, hopefully you'll be seeing the same images I've got up here on my PowerPoint at home. Uh, the image of this august, patrician-looking individual, I hope that's before you, could be mistaken for George Washington in the right light, perhaps the right distance, but it's not. Very dashing-looking individual is not our country's first president, but in fact, our country's most notorious traitor, Benedict Arnold. For Americans, you know, even the name, Benedict Arnold is not just a person, it's an epithet, you know, it's a negative name that you call someone else who you're accusing of being treacherous or betraying a traitor. You know, that wasn't always the case. Uh, Benedict Arnold grew up in colonial America like so many others. He joined early in the French and Indian Wars to defend his fellow countrymen, the colonists at that time. And he did so on one hand with some distinction. He was very successful as a leader as a young a teenager and into his early 20s. 
while on the other side he made, it was said, more enemies than friends in that endeavor. A little later in life, he became an astute businessman with his partners. He owned three ships. He was a merchant and a tradesman. He made a lot of money, and yet, for all the money he made, he seemed always to have money problems. Money seemed to be the lodestar of his life. One of his detractors said of Arnold this, money is this man's God, and to get enough of it, he would sacrifice his country. That was said long before he did just that. When it came to the time of the American Revolutionary War, he was a leader in the war, but he felt unappreciated. He felt that others with less acumen or ability than he had were advanced ahead of him, though personally George Washington was someone that thought very highly of him. During the same period, he married Peggy Shippen, and Peggy Shippen was not only a British loyalist, but like Arnold himself, she had very expensive tastes. And it was not long after this that Benedict Arnold began a secret correspondence with the British to basically see at what price the British would pay for him to betray his country. And it was going to start with, he would simply start providing military information to the Brits, number of troops, where they were, armament, that sort of thing. But it was going to culminate with Arnold handing over West Point, uh, a position he had sought so that he could, in fact, hand it over to the British. Now, if you read the communications, in all his communications, the amount of money he expected was constant. It was always uppermost in his mind. Now, the plans were, were discovered. The spy who was helping Arnold in that time was, in fact, discovered. He was hung as a spy. Benedict Arnold was made aware that the, the jig was up, and he fled to the British. After he fled to the British, they made him a general in their own army, and the guy that used to be fighting against the British for the Americans was now on the opposite side. To make his infamy even worse, as a general in the British army, he sacked and burned cities and farms in Virginia and Connecticut, and he put an exclamation mark on his betrayal when he had American soldiers who had already surrendered at Fort Griswold were shot. They were executed en masse. Arnold was faithless at the end of the day because he loved money. And he loved the lifestyle that abundant sums of money could buy. In the Heroes and Villains series this morning, we're looking at a villain who, like Arnold, loved money. His life centered around money. And in a series in the negative vein, when we're looking at villains instead of heroes, in a series highlighting faithlessness as a trait to be avoided, today we look at the most faithless of all villains ever, the worst villain who ever lived. Worse than villains we've already looked at, Doeg the Edomite who slew the priests at the little city of Nob north of Jerusalem. Worse than Cain, the first murderer who murdered his brother Abel. Worse than any and every other villain. In all those cases, one human betrays another human or a group of humans. One sinner, as it were, betrays another sinner. But in the case of Judas Iscariot, a man betrayed not just another human being, but his God, his maker, his friend, the Lord Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. And there is no greater faithlessness possible than that. Look at the PowerPoint images we've got here. Let me look at here on the Hall of Faith. The time frame we're looking at is 
really 33 AD, the last, not only the last year of Jesus' public ministry from about 29 to 33 AD, but also his betrayal, of course, is the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Show you an image of a map just to give you some geography. The circles here represent sort of the main spheres of Judas and the disciples' location with Jesus the night of his betrayal. The lowest circle, if you can see the letter or the number one there, would be a sort of a guesstimate of where the upper room was. Judas, Jesus, and the disciples would have been there for part of the night. Judas would have gone to the Temple Mount area to confer with the Jewish leadership to, to round up the group that would go to the Garden of Gethsemane there on the Mount of Olives just east of Jerusalem where the betrayal itself would occur. The main message we want to take away this morning is something along this line. Great acts of faithlessness are always preceded by smaller acts of faithlessness. So like Benedict Arnold's betrayal of his countrymen for money, Judas's betrayal of Jesus was not for some high-minded cause, but it was for money, and it ended, it was the end of a series of one dishonest step after another. So it didn't happen in one fell swoop, in one moment, but Judas's decisions all along the way led up to that singular act of betrayal at the end. The desire for riches was the fuel in both men's lives Benedict Arnold and Judas, and they pursued riches to their end. The betrayal of their countrymen, that would have been Benedict Arnold, and in Judas's case, of course, the betrayal of his God. We'll go through this story. Well, I want to look first at what Judas did. We'll then look at what kind of a person Judas was, and then we'll look at some of the warnings you and I want to take away from this. Well, in all the gospel accounts, when the disciples are named, Judas is always last. And he's always listed as the one who would betray Jesus. Judas wasn't the only Judas in the New Testament or among the disciples. So he's always identified as the Judas who betrayed Jesus. Clear up maybe a misconception. Iscariot, uh, my wife said when she was small, she and her sister thought it was Judas the scariest. But Judas Iscariot is because he was from the village of Kerioth, which was in Judea near Hebron. Now, we want to remember in all of this that Judas was personally, prayerfully chosen by Jesus along with the other 12 disciples. And it would be hard to say how high a privilege this was. So when you read in the Gospels and Jesus' public ministry, people do anything to be around him. And so you've got the account of the woman who's in a crowd and she thinks to herself, if I can just get near this guy, if I can just touch the hem of his robe, man, that'd be great and I would be healed. Judas is given this privileged position of living with Jesus, walking, talking with Jesus. He spends about three years of his life with Jesus side by side. And put a little perspective on that. He heard the Sermon on the Mount in person. Think of Matthew's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, he heard the Sermon on the Plain in person. He heard all of Jesus' public discourse, and he was privy to all of Jesus' private interaction with the disciples. You couldn't buy entrance into that group of men. He was given it freely. Think too, he saw all the miracles. Judas didn't fail to believe or trust or follow Jesus for lack of evidence. He heard Jesus' words. He saw the miracles. And think of that just for a minute. So he saw Jesus multiply bread and fish, feed 5,000, feed 4,000. He saw Jesus miraculously heal or cure the blind, the deaf, the mute. He saw Jesus 
raised people from the dead on more than one occasion. Widow's son at the city of nine as well as Lazarus. So all the evidence in the world Judas had before him being privy to Jesus' inner circle. Think of this too. This is ironic at least. Remember in Luke's Gospel, Jesus sends the disciples out two by two to preach in his name, to heal in his name, to cast demons out in his name. And Judas would have been a pair of disciples who went out and did just that in Jesus' name. And after the unprecedented privilege in being with Jesus, hearing it all, seeing it all, Judas still decided to betray him. And sort of linking the links of the chain to that night of betrayal, the night of Jesus' betrayal, Judas had already made the bargain with the Jewish leadership when he joins Jesus and the other disciples for the Passover meal, what we now call the Last Supper. Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16. So, in John 13, Judas is there when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Can you imagine that? The one you know you're getting ready to betray is taking the form of a servant washing you, washing your feet. When Jesus told His disciples in sort of this anguished statement that one of you will betray Me tonight, Judas, who'd already made the plans to do that, says, is it Me? Uh, Talk about disingenuous. After Jesus honored Judas by taking some of the bread, dipping it in the sauce, John 13.30 says, Judas then left, left to betray Jesus. And that verse concludes this way, it was night. It was night. It wasn't just the sun had set and it's dark outside. It was night on Judas' soul, a night that would never dawn another day ever. So after Judas' departure and the Passover meal, Jesus and the other disciples go up. Jesus is going to have that prayer time at the Garden of Gethsemane. And and it's this pathetic uh, picture, truly, of Jesus praying three times to God the Father, pouring His heart out, saying, if there's any way this cup of suffering can pass from me, Father, would you figure out another way to do it? But if not, your will, not mine, be done. And after the third time of doing that, he goes back to the disciples who've been asleep again, probably a lot like us, wakes them up. He says, basically, our betrayer, my betrayer is here. We pick that up in Luke 22, verses 47 and 48. It says there, the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them, leading this group from the temple, these armed guards. <clears throat> Excuse me. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Jesus says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It's like, Judas, would you really use the symbol of friendship and loyalty as the act of betrayal? And of course, from there, everything goes downhill quickly. Jesus is arrested. He's tried that night by the Sanhedrin. In the morning, he sees Pilate first. Then he sees Herod Antipas back to Pilate. And though Pilate, you remember, says, I find no guilt in this man, Nevertheless, because of Jewish insistence, he is stripped, flogged, beaten, and crucified. So Judas betrayed the Lamb of God. There's a temptation, and in some especially dramatic presentations of this, they make it look like Jesus is surprised or Judas is noble, and there could simply be nothing further from the truth. God had had spoken and written about Judas' betrayal a thousand years before it occurred. In fact, King David, the key passages in the Psalms that talk about Judas' betrayal are all written by David about 1,000 B.C. 
Psalm 41.9, My close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 69 also talks about Judas's betrayal, what kind of a person he would be. Psalm 109 reads in part, In return for my love they accuse me, so they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. There's a particularly poignant passage in John 6, right at the end of the chapter, in which many of Jesus' disciples are leaving him. He's offended them. And so Jesus asks his disciples, hey, do you guys want to take off also? And Peter speaks for the group. He says, we've got no place and no one else to go. We know who you are. We know you're the Holy One of God. You're the Messiah. Right after that, Jesus says, didn't I choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. In other words, there's no surprise here to God or to Jesus. Judas is doing exactly what God said he would. I want to make sure clear on this point. Judas is fully responsible for what Judas freely chose to do. The fact that God would use him as part of his overarching plan to bring about our salvation is, is God's doing. It's not Judas's doing. Judas is, is a villain of the nth degree. That's what Judas did. He betrayed Jesus. So why did, though, Judas do what he did? He did what he did because he was what he was. How did Judas descend so far to betray Jesus? How could he go from being one of the twelve to the singular betrayer or traitor? And how did he descend to such faithlessness is a question we want to ask ourselves too because we want to make sure and the last points we make is that we avoid Judas's kind of faithlessness. So how did he end up this most traitorous of men? And the answer is he did so one step at a time, one decision at a time. One step at a time, he followed the greedy desires of his own heart because Judas was a thief. And serving his own greed and desires was always his chief end. Listen to this from John 12. This is a passage we looked at a few weeks ago in the context of the women who served Jesus. And in John 12, it was Mary who had poured out this very expensive, very expensive nard on Jesus. And there's complaint listed in the other Gospels, but it's John who tells us who, who uh, launches the complaint about this and why. So she pours out the expensive nard, and John tells us Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now that sounds very noble. But John clarifies. He said this, that is Judas, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. In other words, Judas was a thief and he was with Jesus for what he could get out of the relationship. His motive was greed, and his God was mammon, or the wealth of this world. Uh, Matthew's gospel tells us this. It, put, it puts his offer, like Benedict Arnold's, his offer to betray Jesus into, I think, the right light. Listen to this from Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16. One of the twelve, whose name was Judas, went to the chief priests and said, now, this is the way this thing fell out. He goes to the chief priest and he says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? What's in it for me if I make your dreams come true and deliver Jesus, this thorn in your side, over to you? 
The text says they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, we want to pick up that theme for just a minute. The Jewish leaders are wealthy men. The guys that run the temple are wealthy, very, very wealthy. And Jesus is the guy they want more than anything else out of the picture and out of the limelight. So Judas did a sucker's deal because he got the price of a slave for Jesus who was on their most wanted list. Exodus 21.32 tells us the price of a slave is 30 pieces of silver. But listen to this also from Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. In Zechariah 11, God had told Zechariah to go and basically take on the garb and the role of a shepherd in Israel. And he does so, but the folks around him are not happy with his performance. And so this is what the text says, Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. Zechariah says, I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. They weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. This is in part where the potter's field language comes up in the New Testament. The lordly price, this is mocking language from God, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. When they priced Zechariah's value at 30 pieces of silver, God said that's the estimation they have of my value, and that's the estimation Judas had as well. He got 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave for Jesus. He betrayed his God and his maker, the one who gave him life when he betrayed Jesus. But also think of this. He betrayed the only fully, total, innocent person who's ever walked the earth. And he knew that when he spent his life with Jesus, he knew there's nothing in this guy amiss. Jesus was like the Passover lamb, spotless, without fault. You remember the Jews would get a lamb four days before it was to be offered for Passover, and they could inspect it, and that lamb became, or goat, became kind of a member of their family. Judas had had that privilege for three years. He had seen that Jesus was spotless and without fault, and yet he still betrayed him. It's interesting, in uh, Greek history back in the three and four hundreds, it was Diogenes who used a lantern, if you remember, walking around even in the daylight, to search Athens for one honest man. And Judas lives with the only fully honest, fully innocent person that's ever walked the earth, and his response was to betray him. The enemy that harms us only does what enemies do. But the friend or the confidant who proves faithless is doubly faithless. Think of Judas or think of Benedict Arnold. There's the direct harm that they do, but there's also the betrayal of the relationship itself, and that's actually the greater sin. So how does that happen? How does Judas become Judas? How does Benedict Arnold become Benedict Arnold? No one is born or grows up looking for a career opportunity that ends with their name being synonymous with mud, that they're infamous instead of famous. So how does Benedict Arnold, how does Judas Iscariot move from the centers of godly leadership to the outer darkness of madness, truly madness and betrayal? And the answer is one step at a time, one decision at a time, following the depraved desires of a self-serving heart. Michael Card's not as well-known today uh, as he was in the 80s and 90s, but uh, really a theologian songster, had several albums. His 1985 song, Traitor's Look, is a reference to Judas, and 
want to read the lyrics to that song because they speak well of Judas. And also then they, they give us the opportunity to look at our own lives out of that lens. He wrote or sang in his case, which I won't, how did it feel to take the place of honor at the meal, to take the sup from his own hand, a prophecy to seal, there of the Last Supper? Was it because he washed your feet that you sold him as a slave? The Son of Man, the Lamb of God, who'd only come to save. The silver that they paid to you from out their precious till was meant to buy a spotless lamb, a sacrifice to kill. How heavy was the money bag that couldn't set you free. It became a heavy millstone as you fell into the sea. Now, Judas, don't you come too close. I fear that I might see that traitors look upon your face might look too much like me. Because just like you, I've sold the Lord and often for much less. And like a wretched traitor, I betrayed him with a kiss. The card's point, of course, is not that we can or do Betray Jesus in quite the same way that Judas did, but that rather in the small ways that made Judas who and what he was, the little decisions that led up to that grand betrayal in those small daily decisions and acts of unfaithfulness, we end up sharing the unfaithful spirit of Judas. You know, the husband that is faithless to his wife doesn't do that in a single leap. It's one small defection after another. It's like someone testing the water in a pool, first the toes, then the foot, before they dive in entirely. Benedict Arnold didn't sell out his country. That wasn't his first act of faithlessness. His life was patterned as this guy who overspent, who was always looking for more money, one scheme after another. And the truth is, you and I don't forsake Christ. Think of betraying Christ. Think of walking away in one fell swoop, we do it little by little. And this can go two different ways. For many Christians, there can be this tendency to say, I'll sin a little bit and I'll repent another day and I'll come back. And there's those little betrayals that often set us up for sins that we thought we would never commit, but we get there step by step. For others of us, those in evangelical circles, think of Joshua Harris a year or so ago, think of YouTube stars Rhett McLaughlin and Charles Lincoln, there are these guys who basically say something along this line. You know, I read Genesis 1 through 11 and I realize it's not true. Or I read Bart Ehrman's books and I realize the Gospels aren't quite Gospel and that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, that He really didn't rise from the dead. And what's really going on is they just want to pursue their own agenda in life. They want to do what they know is inconsistent with calling themselves a Christian or they simply want to get on with life according to their new views. But it's all the same. It's the same thing Judas was doing. We, we forfeit one small step at a time. Uh, guys, it never ends well when we sell Jesus out. I found this interesting about Benedict Arnold. He died in 1801, 60 years old, in England. And his life was never what he wanted it to be. He never got from the British the funds for his betrayal that he'd hoped for nor did he get in a pension the kind of money he'd hoped for to take care of his lavish lifestyle. But he died at 60 and was buried. And it sounds like that's the end of the story. And it is almost a hundred years later. A hundred years later. The church that he's buried in 
has renovations going on. And so his remains are, are taken out mistakenly and thrown into a mass unmarked grave. An ignoble end for an ignoble life. And Judas, of course, didn't end well either. He committed suicide. We know this from the Gospels and then Acts again by hanging his body, eventually falling and rupturing open. And the truth is this. No one can betray God and come out on the high side, the good end of that deal. It's always to our harm. Whether it's a grand or a small act of betrayal, we never get the best of that deal. What does it look like? What does it take for you I, to avoid Judas's kind of faithlessness? And I want to suggest a few things here. The first is this. It's to keep our relationship with the Lord fresh and alive. What happens to many of us is our relationship with Christ denigrates because it sort of becomes this rules thing or this peripheral thing, but it's not where our heart is. And if, if it's only that, then it's easy to naysay Jesus, God, the Spirit, or the Scriptures. We want to make sure that we're confessing sin when we've sinned to God and knowing that we're restored and forgiven. We want to be looking for Christ in the Scriptures. Guys, if we just go for rules, if, if it's religious pursuits for us, there's really nothing worth having. It's the relationship with God Himself that will enliven us that keeps us close to Him, that affects us positively the way God means for us to be. We also want to choose to be content with what God gives us. And this is hard to overstate, to be content with what God gives us. So if I'm thinking about money, I want to be content with what I have. First uh, Timothy 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Hebrews 13 says, If I have food and covering, I have enough to give thanks and be content because... Christ is with me. So I can still aspire to increase my income, to provide for my family, to give generously, but I can do so without greed as my motive, like Benedict Arnold and Judas had. I need to be content with my spouse and with my children or with my parents. I need to be content with my looks and my talents and the place God has put me and the time God has put me. God hasn't made any mistakes. It's out of that contentment that I'm able to hear God's word and will and fill the place, valuably fill the place and the time he's given me to. I need to put God's will above everything else and put others before myself. I need to put God first. That's love God. And I need to love my neighbor before I take care of myself. Gail Sayers uh, was a KU prodigy in football, went to the Chicago Bears and played there, and I read his uh, biography as a young man years ago, and I never forgot the title. The title was I Am Third, because he grew up in a godly home with a godly mother who told him, Gail, God is first, others are second, and you're third. And we want to have that same mentality. That fulfills the law of love, to love God first and love my neighbor second. I also want to have healthy relationships with other Christians who can ask me how I'm doing and get an honest answer that others are caretakers of my soul. It's not just me, myself, and I. I'm not alone in this. I'm walking out the faith with brothers and sisters in the faith. I also want to make sure that I have a life, that I enjoy life. Christians of all people, coronavirus, uh, doesn't matter. We should be able to enjoy life because the God whose characteristic is joy and peace is our God. His Spirit lives within us. Guys, the truth is this. 
We needn't worry about sudden or spectacular departure from faith if we'll simply guard our hearts in the small but defining decisions we make every day. We want to avoid the faithlessness of Judas, and we want to help each other towards that end. I want to read two together. If we were here, we'd stand up together now, and hopefully you've got this on your screen or on your study sheet. I want to read together, close this time by reading 1 Peter 1, 14-19, and in part because it's this text that speaks to the value of Christ, the value of what Christ did to redeem us from our sin. So I'll read here and you read at home. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Think of greed. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God make it so for us. Amen. Let me give you some announcements before we bid you adieu for the day. Uh, Watch your email for Breeze and Uh, your text, also your cell phones for text as far as updates on what we do going forward uh, while the virus remains in effect and we are social distancing ourselves from each other. If you're not on Breeze, you can do so. Get with us there. Simply send us your name, your cell phone number, and your email address at the contact site at our website and we'll get you taken care of. By the way, too, if you have feedback for us from the streaming issues, I've received a couple of texts this morning there's some sporadic nature of the audio or video, or perhaps both. Why? Let us know. We'll try and take care of that. Tell you two related to streaming in the next few weeks, at least. At, yes, at least. April 5th, Kent Vincent will be teaching next week. Sunday school lesson will, I think that's Willie, will occur next week as well. That'll be streamed. Kent also is going to lead in the Lord's Supper, so we hope you're prepared to share that at home. We know we're not in the same space geographically, but we'll be sharing so in the same time simultaneously, so we hope you'll join in that, have bread and wine or juice ready for that next Sunday during this service. We're also planning on streaming the April 10th Good Friday service, that's at 6.30. We're planning on streaming Resurrection Sunday Lessons and Hymns uh, 10.30 on April 12th. There will be no Sunday school lesson that morning. And if you've been here in the past, you know those are highlights of the year for me. I hope they are for you too, so hope you'll plan on joining us for those. Give you a quick edition update. Doors, uh, more doors are installed. I'm not sure if they're all up yet, but it's pretty close. The cabinets for the kitchen are up and installed. Railings are installed. And please pray with us. Uh, We're supposed to have the driveway ripped out and replaced this week. That's a big deal. Uh, Getting hold of our contractors and getting them here is a challenge. So pray for that. Pray for the weather that they can not only get here, but get this done. Uh, finances, we pray you'll continue to give as you're able, and we know for some of you that may be diminished, that's fine. If you've made pledges through April for the building fund, we hope you'll fulfill those as well as you're able. Two, let me give an unapologetic appeal for you to check out my blog site, AppliedHeart.com. The reason I say that is my son-in-law, Steve Golden, has revamped the whole thing. 
and I've got two collaborators, Steve Golden and Lee Anderson. So there's a trio now contributing to AppliedHeart.com. There will be an article out at least weekly and sometimes more often. And speaking at least for the other two guys, I can tell you they'll be worth reading. So I hope you'll check that out, AppliedHeart.com. Also, do you need anything? We want to make sure we're caring for each other in these unusual days. If you need something from the store, I'm serious about this. Let your home group leader, let me, let one of the elders know we want to take care of each other in all the ways that we can. So we're praying for each other, I trust, taking care of each other, keeping the faith. And that's all I've got for today. So thanks for joining with us. We'll see you here next Sunday. God bless. Bye-bye.